Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another rowing chat. I'm Rebecca Caro, and today I want to remind you about Row Tours. It's a new rowing holiday company headed by Olympian Pete Wells. You can join the Row Tours team in a mini rowing vacation ahead of the World Rowing Championships this summer. Choose from either three, four, or a six-day rowing boat tour down the Danube River, starting in Passau and ending in Linz in time for the World Championships. You can get more information and pricing at www.rowtours.com forward slash rowing hyphen chat. I also want to remind you that Will Ruth, who's also a podcaster on the Rowing Chat Network, his book, Rowing Stronger, is now published in a second edition. It was hugely popular when he first published it, and it takes in a lot of the work that he talks about with his co-hosts on the Strength Coach Roundtable podcast. We've got a special offer just for you because you're a listener. Will has given all of us the option to get an additional free download of the first chapter. You can get it from rowing.chat forward slash sponsors and click on the link. Now, today I'm joined by Martin Cross. Hey, Martin, welcome. Hey, thanks, Rebecca. I was just um, reflecting uh, when I used to coach Pete Wells. Oh. Um, you mentioned in the ad, and and like not a lot, but um, is obviously brother Matt. And uh, I remember doing a session with him at Molsey, and it was kind of imagine doing like twenty strokes flat out, imagining your your favourite character in the world that you'd like to be doing the twenty strokes. And I think Wellesley chose Keith Moon, the drummer, who was like mad, and you should have seen him go on those twenty strokes. So I don't know if he's going to go down the Danube like that on the rowing tours, but it'll be quite something. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to go try that right away. Yeah. Martin, introduce yourself to the listeners and tell them a little bit about your background in rowing. Yeah, well, I guess most listeners might remember me not for how I look, which has kind of changed a bit now, but for my voice. And, and certainly when I go to World Cup regattas or World Championships, People recognise me because they go, oh, you're the bloke who does the commentary, uh, generally with Greg Sir or Sarah Cook um, or, or, or some of the other comment great commentators we have on visa. So I do world road, world road commentary. And I guess the question, what qualifies me to do that? So um, I guess my, my tagline is, is after Steve Redgrave, who's a name most people relate to in rowing, famous British row with five Olympic goals. I'm Britain's most capped ever row. So I did 18 consecutive years in the British team um, while having a full-time job, which was a bit mad. And in that time, I was fortunate enough to uh, win a couple of Olympic medals, one of them gold, uh, several World Championship medals, lots of other things. Um, and I'm pretty much a rowing geek. Uh, if I hold my hands up now, you know, I still row quite regularly. Um, I write about rowing, broadcast about rowing, um, and and yeah, generally that geek tag is is, is quite good for me. I I can relate to that. Do you remember the rowing geek test that Rachel Quarrell had on her website back in the day? Yeah, yeah, she is a rowing geek actually. Um, yeah, wor a worthy one. Yes, I do. I I I pass that. Yeah, I seem to recall that if you had almanacs or rowing magazines from more than one country, you got maximum points. 
Yeah, I don't think I have on my shelves, but I think up there I've got ludicrous almanacs from like 1973 when I first started rowing. Yeah, yeah, that was brilliant. Yeah, with people on the front. Yeah, so I, I might, I might do that. Now, Martin, you're a great observer of both the domestic scene in the UK and also the international scene, and I want to kick off by asking for your views on some of the changes that we're already seeing happening at the Olympic level, and obviously how that trickles down to the World Championship level. What do you think about these changes in reducing the number of lightweight events and introducing a new heavy four event for women? Well, um, I think the, the notion of gender equality is, 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 has been something that I guess has been long delayed. I think that the it's been a great thing for the sport. Um, which really has come at the expense of lightweights. Um, and I think that the intransigence of the IOC or the unwillingness to expand rowing has, has been one of the reasons for that. So they won't give rowing more medals. So rowing's had to stay at 14 events. And so gender equality is kind of, it's kind of like a no brainer. It's almost like the boat race for women couldn't go on the tideway. It had to stay at Henley because it wasn't ready. It wasn't competitive enough. And then all of a sudden it goes and races on the tideway and people wonder how it ever wasn't in, in as part of that great sort of uh, festival of rowing and it's the same with women's fours um in the games that, that really you, you could look at say well a number of countries maybe some of the balkan countries uh you know row, women's rowing is not so strong in say croatia crew rowing or, or, or serbia um where men's rowing is much stronger and you kind of go well we'll wait until that happens but basically you you have to introduce it at olympic level and then national olympic committees start funding and and you you see that already in some of the big federations and, and clearly countries like the states are in pole position because they've got such strong women's programs already um britain and australia i guess not far behind canada but you know i, I think it will have an impact on, on these countries. I think it's interesting seeing Italy, which has never traditionally been strong in women's rowing, has now now got um, quite a, a number of really strong female rowers. And um, I, I think that's only going to continue. I definitely echo what you say. And equalising the sweep crews, I think, is really a powerful move. I have to say my regrets are in the smaller nations who benefit obviously from FISA's development program and who tend to send a single scholar um, that actually they were the ones who potentially if they had two athletes, a lightweight crew was a possibility. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, FISA's, it's got to keep an eye out for this, um, the, the universality. So obviously the way it does that is by increasing, in terms of single skulls, men's and women's single skulls, like having as many nations as possible. Uh, so famously, I think it was Eric the Eel in, in 2012 um, from one of the African nations. I can't remember which one. He was a swimmer, yeah. I saw yeah. him. Yeah, but there was a guy, that, the rowing guy, that you can still see the clip on the BBC Sport website. It um, wasn't Peter Egby, but it could have been. And, and 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 so I think these are, are pretty astute in terms of what they do with smaller boats. Um, 
yeah, I, I kind of think some people were advocating lightweight men's and women's singles as a possible option, I think, when we were looking at changes about gender equality, and that, that never got passed. So but there are a lot of um, men's and women's singles slots in the Olympics that keep the number of nations high, which is a pretty key indicator for the International Olympic Committee. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good thing. The big thing that I have observed, because going to the Olympics is something that my husband and I do. We've, we've been doing it for a long time. And one of the things I've observed in the years since I've been doing that is that cycling has been very, very canny at diversifying the types of events that they run and that they've successfully got into the Olympic programme. I mean, I remember when uh, um, downhill speedy cycle cross was first put in. And now they have an enormous number of stadium events, road events, and then challenging events, which are almost like skateboarding. And it makes me wonder whether rowing couldn't have gone down that route. Well, I, I think you're right, and I think it will. And I think the obvious thing for diversification is indoor rowing. And, um, I mean, we can probably talk about coastal rowing, which looks to be more like one of the events that could get on the 2024 programme. But FISA's got a very active committee in terms of developing indoor rowing. Um, it, it is a no-brainer that that ought to be an Olympic sport, in my opinion. You know, not that... I. I don't know whether how many youngsters you see in the gym or whether it's got teenage appeal because I think with the IOC it's really looking for sort of sexy sports that appeal to that sort of very young market and, and I'm not quite sure whether bergs in the gym necessarily do that but I, I do think it's a, it's it is a huge area in our sport and it needs to be reflected in the Olympic movement the, the question is what what makes way for it mm. um and and either it has to be such a pressing thing that the IOC feel it's so attractive that you it's going to add to their offering in the Olympic Games, in which case maybe they might make move you know for, maybe they might make additional gold medals available more than the fourteen, um, but to me that that provides the options. I mean the format that you could you could adopt. Um, you know, there, there's all sorts of interesting ways you can look, whether it's the same rowers in the rowing competition that you have an indoor element and uh, they all have to do ergs to get selected. So why not do ergs to get Olympic gold medal as well? I mean, that, that, that there, there are lots of creative options. But to me, that is what will happen. You know, I, I would imagine probably by 2028 Olympics and, and at, at the outside by... Um, by 2032. Wow. I personally would love to see a kind of omnium type event where you've got the all-round athlete who can both sweep, skull, erg, you know, row a small boat, row a big boat. And I think that that would be almost a blue ribboned event. Yeah. I, what's interesting about that, Rebecca, is I think at the moment, you know, you, you've got, first of all, a sport which is desperate to keep its identity of an endurance sport. So really, um, you know, our sport is led by Jean-Christophe, who's, who's doing, you know, a great job in terms of um, trying to maintain uh, the integrity of the sport uh, within, you know, World Rowing, within Olymp the Olympic movement, and, and while trying to react to the IOC. Um, he didn't necessarily come in as Thomas Bach's man. He had, in fact, quite the opposite. He had Denny Oswald's support, but he has now got on the IOC and he is, 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 um, 
he's very keen to, to keep Rowan's values at the same time as show it's flexible. So, you know, they want to keep 2,000-metre rowing, and, you know, they're looking to be flexible, like in Los Angeles, by having a shorter course or a different course for um, the, the 2028 games to make it more cheap. But they're looking to develop coastal rowing as an extra thing to seemingly say, well, we're listening to the IOC when Thomas Buck came to Blovdiv last year at the World Championships and said, look, you know, you either adapt or die, which was a pretty stark warning. I mean, he didn't say that in those words, but I'm paraphrasing. The, the thing with Jean-Christophe is he's quite a conservative guy with a small C. In fact, he's very conservative. And he, he's very stage by stage. So he doesn't go in for a lot of those, like, let's have these Omnium type events, let's be creative. I think that's something that he'll have to evolve into. And he is the leader of our sport. And and, and I think um, you, you've really got to get him round to, yeah, this is a good idea. This is the way the sport should go. Um, and, and I think then things will happen. And at the moment, I think he's, he's into, you know, let's... Let's keep the endurance, the 2K event, but let's look at making it like 1800. I mean, anyone that has rode Mannheim in the docks, as I have, I mean, it was 1850. You never really bothered that much. I mean, it was, you know, it was a decent race. And, and the Olympics could be the same if it's cheaper. Coaster Road's another option that he's going down. But I don't see him yet ready to grasp these kind of, let, let's get a team of eight rowers, uh, or mix them up, male and female, do do quad skulls, doubles, and then all get into the eight, which I think personally is a great option. I, I think he's yet to arrive at that space. So maybe doing him a disservice, but I think those changes will take longer. Interesting. A small digression. I raced in France, in the south of France, a long time ago, and at the regatta, they had a wonderful prize, which was Jean-Christophe Roland and Michel Andrieux Eau de Parfum, and we kind of wondered what this perfume smelled like. Yeah, yeah. Well, they are big heroes. I mean, uh, my son actually rode with um, uh, Jean-Christophe when uh, he was at Molsey because he rode with the sort of veterans, the master's group we call the Leggings. And and I took him out for an outing because we go to France and we go to the Com Rowing Club sometimes there. And it, it emerged that, you know, that he rode with Jean-Christophe Roland and all of a sudden his like stature in the eyes of everybody had just grew by like two or three feet because because JC is such like a, a god in French rowing. Fantastic. It's like adventure tourism, only better. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the World Rowing Championships, which of course is the event that FISA can completely control. It is the way they want it. At the moment we have juniors under 23, seniors and masters as a slightly different category, and they've started running an indoor rowing event as well. What progress do you think they've made with inclusivity? Well, I think the, the most obvious thing with inclusivity, we spoke about gender equality, which was, I think, a big issue for our sport increasingly in, in the world we live in today. Um, I think rowing is making fantastic strides in, in Paralympic. Um, sport um and and you know it's tried to be um i think moving it to 2k there's a lot of opposition i think you know when you talk with coaches and and you know they're like why does it have to be 2k boring all the rest of it you know to my money you you have to make it 
part of our sport. You know, there is no reason why Paralympic rowers can't race over 2K. Um, I think it will be more competitive. I get, you know, I think the Paralympics is a massive draw. So I think that is making our sport much more inclusive. And, you know, even there are TV adverts. I saw one last night on, you know, about it happened to be for people who um, trying to recover from from accidents like road accidents. And, and what it showed was, was Paralymp- uh, not Paralympic, but rowers, um, you know, arms and body rowers um, on, on some river, not, not at any high standard, but rowing was part of the, the sort of therapy and it was an image being used. And I think that's a very strong image and it does project inclusivity. Um, I think, you know, to the extent one might say that's that's been at the cost of lightweight rowing. And I think, you know, lightweight's in under 23 now. The funding for that is is obviously under threat. Um, and, and you know, it, it impacted the lightweight fours and, um, and it's going to impact lightweight men and, and lightweight women. And, and you could say, well, that's, again, part of the problem the sport's going to face. The, the pressure there is coming from National Olympic Committees. Um, you know, I, I did see the Irish Olympic pair haven't got, or, or Paul, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah the, 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 the lads who won in 2017 haven't got funding um, from their federation. And they tried to, to go up in weight, but, you know, they didn't quite have the pace. So... Um, the pressure there is coming from National Olympic Committees, not FISA. So FISA will always react to demand for events. So I think FISA is trying to put on events. Ultimately, the logic of the decisions they've made is that, you know, lightweights are not going to be included in the world stage. That, that won't affect some nations. Like America's got a massively strong lightweight rowing program. You know, Princeton, Cornella, great, and... and you know the lightweights in in those american universities have, have a fantastic scene and they aren't dependent on what world rowing does but clearly a lot of other lightweight rowers are and you know and, and they're gonna have to find their home in 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 an open weight category thinking back to when lightweights were introduced was 76 the first Olympics or was they a world championships before? No, that? no it was so um, the the first Olympics I think for lightweights was ninety six. So the last the last um, the last Olympics uh, was ninety two. Um, that had like the Cox pairs, if you remember, that was one of the events that, that made way and, and the Cox four to, to for the lightweight fours and, and the lightweight doubles. And so the, at the world in. level. When when was it lightweights introduced at the World Rowing Championship? Well, the yeah. Europeans, was it? No, I remember. So my first World Championships that I went to as a sixteen-year-old was Lucerne in 1974, mm. and I remember seeing. I think it was, it was Andy Andy Mitchell Moore stroking the Australian lightweight four to win a gold medal at that championships, mm. and I think that was the first lightweights in the World Championship. Someone you may prove me wrong on that, but it's been in the World Championships a while. And was it introduced for a specific reason? Does I mean it'd be interesting to get the context as to what the situation, the world view was then, and why it got introduced, and now why we're looking at potentially the end of lightweights as a racing category. Well, I think it was interesting if you look at how Ryan was structured. There, you know, um, you had the 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 row the men's rowing championships one week, and then you had women's and lightweights. So lightweights got in with the women. 
So, so you didn't really see the lightweights because I think they raced separately, as as I recall. Somebody may prove me wrong on that. Um, and and they've always because they weren't in the Olympics, so they've always had a separate kind of championships. I think you know, I think in the year of Los Angeles in '84, maybe they went up to Montreal mm -hmm. to have their own championships. So they've always been seen a little bit apart, but included. And then, you know, then they came together in the same week. And, and it used to be, you, you had such fantastic races. I remember, you know, names like Vim Van Belligan, the, the Belgian lightweight single sculler. Franz Goebel, I mean, he was a complete nutcase, the Dutch um, lightweight single sculler. I remember him qualifying in Copenhagen in, 77, in 87 in, in, in the semi-final. And then he did a wind down and you kind of could row back down. And then the other semi-final, the second semi-final came and they were going through like a thousand, like 1100 meters. And Goebel just picked it up and started going flat out and thought, right, I'll just test my pace with them. And you had characters like that, you know, the British guy, Peter Hainan and so on. Yeah. Um, and then the lightweight eights was just a phenomenal event. And that's been completely destroyed now. I mean, you know, because of the Olympic pressure and because of funding, I mean, we might come on to funding pressures. Ultimately, it's money. And so, you know, sports are throwing money at the Olympic programme and they don't have money for the lightweights. It's interesting, though, that uh, the way in you pointed out via the women's championship, very similar to actually how the boat race was, because the Henley boat races used to be the women and lightweights. And now, of course, the lightweights are also, I think, moving to the tideway. Is that right? Yeah, you, I, I'm, I'm not going to comment on that because I'm not 100% certain, but I do believe that they are having an extra race on the tideway. I think it's uh, a different day. Um, or, yeah, or, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's brilliant. And let's talk about the boat race since we've kind of got to it in a roundabout way. Um, young James Cracknell. Now, I and probably you remember Andy Ripley having a crack at getting into the Cambridge Blue Boat aged, I think, 54 um, he didn't even make Goldie. Crackers. Yeah, the thing about Andy was Andy was a rugby player that came to row in late and he was good on the erg and he rowed at Scullers. And I think that technical expertise he just didn't have because I think he, a, a lad like him who's really, really fit, and I remember him with a lot of fondness, would have made Goldie and his erg score would have made, you know, the blue boat. But Obviously, what Crackers has got is is that phenomenal technique. I mean, I did see in some interviews he said he hadn't rode since 2004, which is not strictly true because I remember, you know, last year at the Veterans Head, um, we had a couple of Molesy sort of Masters 8s and, and Crackers was in one. Uh, he was riding with George Nash, like who just won. <laughs> Nash was in the, Nash was in the seventh seat. Dan Ritchie, who was like, you know, Olympic silver, um, sorry, silver medalist, I think, from Carapiro in 2010, um, stroking at eight. I think Crackers got in the four seat and they, they won the veteran's head. So, obviously, you know, he, he's been rowing. I've rowed with him, not not recently, but a few times. At most. So, he's, he's not like he's given up rowing. But clearly, you know, I think for him to come back and... and it's a whole nother level to do masters right and then to go in with what you're doing in the blue boat and and, and that's just phenomenal i have to say i you know i don't think i i never doubted he'd get in because i knew what ergs he's capable of and the guys that i wrote in masters right and just thought well 
probably, you know, he's motivated, he can do that. And I think maybe it's more of a surprise for people that might think he's just come back and wow, he seems old. But, you know, I, th I think now, like, what is it, 60s is a new 40 or something like that, what they're saying. Um, <laughs> you know, people are doing things older than they used to be, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Nevertheless, it doesn't yeah. diminish the achievement. It is a fantastic achievement. I totally take my hat off to him. I have to say that he probably will never say this, but I strongly suspect that the biggest challenge was not the physical challenge. I, I suspect all that muscle memory is good and, you know, getting back to fitness was good. But the way a big squad like that is run and obviously the multiculturalism, it's very different from being in one of the top two boats in the GB system and just having Jürgen. And I suspect mentally that was probably a bigger challenge. Like you, you, you are not expected to contribute. You're expected to jump however high the coach says. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, like he rocked up at the World Championships in Plovdiv and we were doing commentary and I happened to be in the herbs, in, in the herb room. And then like Cracknell, he'd come in with the BBC later and he's like straight on the earth because he's basically saying, I've got to do this score. It was clearly the thing, I've got to do this score and he's got mental pressure. But, you know, I, I think from what I've heard, and I haven't talked to James specifically, but, you know, from what I've heard, he has been like a breath of fresh air in the squad. He's been very humble. He's been encouraged people to talk about the vulnerability, about, he's encouraged people to talk about why they're good as a, as a group. He's really been a fantastic squad member, and and I, and I think you know that that's gone into obviously being in the crew. So um, you know he, he's showing real wisdom, I think. You know, which you would hope when you get older, you're, you're not just because I can remember around with him like as a twenty-year-old, so I know what he was like then. Um, headbanger. Sorry. A bit of a headbanger. Yeah, yeah, a lot of a headbanger, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he had a pretty checkered career, actually, um, early on um, in, in rowing. And, um, he, you know, he even he decided not to do the 92 Olympics and go and play rugby um, for, for various reasons. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I've heard some really sort of uh, impressive things about how he's been in the squad. It was very interesting, that sort of leadership and your, I, I loved your choice of word of humble. And it brought to mind an anecdote that Tim McLaren told me, the Australian coach, when he was coaching in the American sweep team. And Jamie Coven was trying for a comeback. Very similar, an older guy, already much medalled. And Tim said, you know, we're coming down to selection times and I have one-on-ones with the athletes. And Jamie comes into the room to speak to me and he sits down and the first thing he says is, well, Tim, how can I help you? And Tim said, I was floored. I have never, ever in all his years coaching had an athlete look at the job from my point of view. Yeah. Jamie's a very impressive man and, uh, you know, uh, he was, he's flying at the moment. I mean, he was, he did that double with his daughter who's uh, medal at the junior championships. And um, I think she's at Harvard now. And um, I, I was with him in New York at the Paratend dinner actually early this year. And I know he was kind of flirting a bit of maybe we could do the World Coastals um, together, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure his daughter isn't tied up with academic stuff. But uh, 
He's a very impressive man. Spends a lot of time with the Power Ten, raising money for American Ryan. He's obviously involved with the Henley Stewards. Lovely guy. And, of course, a former world champion in the single skull, too. That's right. He was the one who flipped when his gate came undone. I remember that. I can't remember that. Was that he was, was racing that... Greg Searle. It was the year that Greg got his bronze, and I think, I think I'm right. Uh, no, he... no, no, no. Greg, Greg got his bronze, and then Jamie Coven won the gold. It might have been another year. Yeah, after. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, let's talk about the boat race sponsorship. It is said that the current sponsorship expires after this race due, due at Easter time. What's in the pipeline, do you think, for this race? Because it's so quirky, anachronistic, so high profile, such great opportunity for the sport. And yet, who wants to put their hand in their pocket and come up with a million pounds for the next four years? Well, I, I think it's what's interesting is if you look at the current climate for sport sponsorship, uh, which overall so it is undoubtedly much harder for sports to get the same level of sponsorship that they were probably getting 10 15 or 20 years ago um you know just take a look at, at rowing when it had camelot and then it had siemens the big electrical firm as a sponsor and you know basically since london it's had no one Right, rowing's obviously a fairly low-profile sport. The boat race is, is is much more significant, and clearly, you know, they had BMY Mellon, and then they had Newton, which kind of rock and roll with the women's boat race, and that had massive publicity getting it onto the tideway. But in in effect, companies don't really want to spend that much money on supporting sports now, and the boat race has this particular target of money it needs, and as an event, it isn't particularly attractive because it is only once a year. Oh, yeah. And and that is obviously, I guess, one of the advantages that it's on that day. But clearly, you know, if you're going to put money into a sport, you kind of want exposure more than just once a year. If you could be guaranteed a James Cracknell. So, so when I used to write for The Guardian and stuff like that, I mean, you know, the Guardian doesn't write about Ryan practically at all now. You know, they, they don't have money for Ryan correspondence. But I would get rung up by sports writers interested to know what Cracknell and Pinson, because they were two names, were doing. And Cracknell still got a draw, as we saw. You know, the, the stories about Cracknell weren't really on the sports pages. They were on you know, the inside front pages of The Times and The Guardian and, and, and The Telegraph and that sort of thing. If if he was going to be rowing every year, then that might be more attractive, but he's not. And and so I think the boat race will, will struggle for a sponsor unless it gets into, you know, they have a they they're really well connected and like Beef Eater Gin sponsorship, which used to run the boat race, happened upon because there was a, a guy friendly to the boat race, I think an old blue. Yeah, exactly. yeah we all to sponsor. Now What's fascinated is is how the boat race, so, you know, as I said earlier, I've come back from the American Power 10 dinner in January. And, you know, American International Rail doesn't have really much funding at all. So the, the guys that have got money, the wealthy guys get together, that uh, they basically run funding to support American International Rowers. And in effect, that's what's happening with the boat race now. So there is now... Oxford have created the Topolsky Foundation. So you can go online and look at this, you know, which is a great sort of um, organisation. 
I, I gather it's had a target to raise 20 million pounds and I think it might be halfway there. It, it's a very altruistic, you know, body. The, the governance is very, very tight. So, you know, it's not just about Oxford winning because they will release money if a similar thing happens for Cambridge. So the, the, the future there is possibly that you've got this endowment and federation, you know, that, that can support the high level of training and the kind of coaching and the boats um, and be independent of sponsors and sponsors can bung in and maybe, you know, subsidise the race costs. To me, that's probably the future of boat race funding um, because it is a very tight climate. And, you know, outside of like massive sports like football or soccer in the UK, it's it's difficult. I I gather even in rugby in the in the Six Nations, um, you know, RBS were the sponsors and the and the, the RFU or the rugby authorities thought they could get more money and they couldn't, and then they had to go cap in hand back to RBS, who then paid them less money for the title sponsorship. But so the boat race did that with exchanging. Do you remember exchanging had a four, uh, three or four year three years and then they did a fourth year and a fifth year. And there was a pattern through the sort of 90s and early 2000s of financial services firms using the boat race to build profile ahead of a stock market listing. And yeah. as a professional marketer, I can see the value in that because the sorts of people who watch the boat race are often working in the city of London. They're the people who are going to advise their clients to buy the shares. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair with with. BMY Mellon, I mean, we, we did a, a veterans eight at the head of the oh, child with, uh, you know, and it, and it was Redders and Pinson, um, Johnny Sum, and people with a profile Olympic medals. Um, and then they had people like Kath Granger going over doing the women's eight, Kath Bishop, you know, really high profile female rowers. And, and BMY basically made films of, of us talking about this is how you win, this is how you compete, this is the analogy with business. And, and you know, they could obviously see a crossover and they've kind of mined that. Well, I mean, that's got a shelf life. And, you know, I, you know, I think I think that's for somebody else to look to invest in. I mean, obviously, we don't know they haven't got another sponsor yet, but, you know, it's a tough market out there. It really is. And interesting point that you made earlier about having a high profile athlete in the rules of the boat race, recruiting to your team is not allowed. And yet... God bless Dan Topolsky and may he rest in peace. But he used to take an annual trip to America to go around the universities and talent spot. Is it possible that they might review the race rules? And in the same way that some sailing races have a crew that includes a, usually it's actually a sponsor who gets one seat in the boat as a passenger. You wouldn't want a passenger in the boat race, but could they not look to both recruit a really high-profile individual, but they'd have to be really screwed with money for that. I mean, the boat race has got rules that are like, you know, it, it is an amazing event. It's been going since the early nineteenth century, and the people running it are very well aware of the traditions. And I think that's an interesting idea. I, I think you know, you would have to basically. You like drawing blood from a stone to get them to change the rules of the boat race, I think, in that way. It is fascinating what you say, but it is a remarkable event because it has that tradition. And ultimately, it's very simplistic in terms of challenges of two universities. Um, 
there, there are lots of things, you know, that I wonder about the boat race, but clearly it's a successful event and, and it's an iconic event in, in world sport. It surely is. And I'm sure where there's a will, there's a way. And I look forward to learning more about the uh, Topolsky Foundation. Let's move on to British rowing. There's been a hell of a brouhaha in the Twitterverse recently about British rowing has uh, had a long-standing goal to own more race events. It doesn't own Henley Royal Regatta. It started trying to do sprint racing in town centres and it of course has the National Rowing Championship which has struggled, I think it's fair to say, to find a place in the calendar because it doesn't represent school rowing because they have the school championship separately. It doesn't represent masters rowing. And now it's been moved to a date that has upset a lot of people. What's going on there, Martin? Well, um, I think it would depend who you talk to because everyone would have a view on that. Um, clearly, you know, Rowan had a new CEO, Andy Parkinson, come into the sport. And I think probably a lot of the strategy about what the sport should try and do has, has probably been driven by Andy. Certainly, I think the, the, the sprint rowing is something that he's um, keen on. And um, I am, without wanting to put words in his mouth, but my understanding is that he would really like that to be part of the Olympic scene and he would like sprint events to be in there. I certainly, you know, it's one of the comments made um, when I was at the Power 10 dinner in New York that the CEO of American Rowing was, was sort of kind of making common calls with, you know, let's get this type of event in the Olympics. So obviously, I think the sport has done, British Rowing has done very well to get that event covered on the TV. Uh, I think it was on the red button as opposed to a live channel. But, you know, I remember from being involved in organising a 500 metre televised sprint event in the 80s. on The, the DAF Power Sprints. I remember that. No, Gold, Goldstrom did the DAF. We did the Serpentine, which was international. Okay. We never made any money. We covered our costs. We had we had sponsors from London Electricity Board. We had sponsorship from Air France. We had sponsorship from Westminster City Council, and they all paid in kind. But we, as a company, Ryan Promotions, we made no money. And I'd be very, you know, in in a sense, as a commercial proposition, how are you going to make money for that? And 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 ultimately, that that's what's going to generate a successful event. The national championships, um, I mean, when it first came, when Nottingham first came on um, as a course, so I'm, I'm talking now 71, 72. Um, so I remember going up before the, the 72 Olympics and before the crews went and watching all the international crews race at the national championships with national crews. I, I remember in 75, actually, when I was a junior, you went to the national championships. It was in July, and we were lined up there. There was, you know, we were next to um, to Jim Clark's crew that were racing the world championships, Great time, yeah. and and they were the British team for the world championships, and they were racing a Great Four with I think Christian McLeod from Lady Margaret College, you know, who were fast, and they were a bit psyched out about racing them, and you know, and we were there as juniors, and um, the starter went, you know said, are you ready? And 
John, our bowman, put his hand up and said no. And the, the squad four thought he was a start and went off. And then, and basically they, they, they went back and they called us, you know, lots of four-letter words for doing that because they were so wound up. But in effect, you had everybody there in July at the national championships. And, um, and, 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 and what's happened now is you've got a squad system which is kind of, you know, there, there is no room for that in, 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 in the squad system. And you've got athletes from universities that go into the under-23 squad system and there isn't any space for that. So the squad system and the drive for success in that has, has essentially destroyed the kind of, you know, the funness or let's go to the national championships. And, in, you know, you, you can't have a squad system with a, a national championships, it seems to me, in a, in a successful way like we used to have. So you're always struggling to try and work out how that's going to happen. It does work in the Southern Hemisphere. And the reason is because of dates. Because the World Rowing Championships is August or September. And so down here in Australia and New Zealand, every single athlete races the national championships because at the nationals, that's where the selectors pick the people they want to go to final trials. So they've all got to be there unless they have a medical reason. So you genuinely do get a, a week long regatta that reflects every single part of the sport with the possible exception of some secondary schools because they also have, they have a separate championship a little bit later, but like the old British system, I think the under 18s race at the national championships. So, you can do it, but it means it in the UK, it ends up in a very unfriendly time of year, which is probably March. Yeah. April time. The, the logic is like, so New Zealand, you know, the, the lads from the Southern Hemisphere go back and they're racing 2Ks down there. So they're basically, you know, they have a nice 2K race. But the logic is that what, what rowers should do here is, is that the national team, you know, should have much more of a profile at the force head I know they have a bit of a profile, um, and some of the other heads, not not just you know the eight head, but it's it's kind of it's so protective in the squad what they do, you know, and and even some of the rows at at, at Boston are cancelled, but you know I'd like to see them racing in more heads like they do in New Zealand, um, with more club rowers because you know when when they're not racing like in in the World Cup events in the summer, you know there's more space for them to do more competitive events, but they don't because they're in this very controlled squad system. So something's got to give if if things are going to change. You know, I, I think trying to manufacture like a 2K race for the squad to be involved in is, is not going to happen. Like, it's, well, they tried it. They tried it in October. And, and all I remember is reading tweets from people saying, this is the first time I've ever been to the national championship. And they, that was from people with world and Olympic medals. And I was like, well, that's actually not a disgrace, but it's a reflection of the squad system, the early recruitment, and the fact that if you didn't go as a schoolboy and you learned to row in world-class stars or something, why would you go there? So... Yeah. Let's talk about domestic rowing below the international level. Is it a shame that there isn't a single event that is a national rowing championships? Well, I think what we tend to do is we kind of look and see what events there are. And, you know, so typically I will look at season and, and Henley is the focus. 
uh, as it always has been. And I do remember when the national championships came on, you know, it was after Henley, but it, it was still a significant, you know, event. And I've got medals in the medal cabinet back there of national championships. I was very proud to win them. And, you know, there were still national schools and I would do national championships. And, and they, they meant quite a lot and they were very competitive. Uh, but now you you look at regattas that mean a lot. And, you know, I mean, uh, Brooks and other crews go to Ghent. And that, that's kind of got a very British, you know, aspect to it. You know, if you, you hear they go to Ratsburg and Mulsey went there last year, I think, as well, I think. Um, and and so you kind of go, they're the regattas that mean something. And then you've, you've, you've kind of got these sort of, um, this triumvirate of races at Dorney, of, of Wallingford. Um, Met and, and Barlow. Mm. So... In as much as, you know, it works as it works. So um, the national championships has fallen into disrepute. I think British Ryan feel that they should have a national championships, but what's a, a whole system has grown up around the sport and you kind of then got to break that down. And what they try to do is smash it in because, you know, they're, they're trying to prove preserve this brand and they're trying, as you say, to get this identity of, you know, owning events. I'm not sure that's going to be successful given the strength of what's grown up around it and, and what clubs do. It I mean, sounds like the weekend they've picked is particularly challenging for a couple of reasons. Mostly the availability of umpires, of which there are only a certain number in this country yeah. who have multi-lane. And it's the same weekend as, as I think the National Masters, which is in Strathclyde, and the same weekend as Reading Town Regatta. And... There are yeah. other regattas also on that weekend. I, I'm just popped into my head. The, the one thing I thought you were going to ask in terms of British Ryan was the changes at the top in terms of performance directors and uh, chief coaches. Let's talk about that too then. Off you go. Well, I, you know, I, I think it's the, the it's a very different type of performance director um, now from what it used to be uh, with with David Tanner. And um, and I think what's what's been reflected now is the way that coaches can relate to their athletes. And I think in particular with Tomo, who clearly is a coach with an outstanding medal record, you know, from back in 1996 when he coached um, the Australians. Yeah. Gold in Atlanta, and then all, all of the medals that he's been involved with, either coaching or, or as chief coach. Um, but he, he's got quite an abrasive manner. And, um, you know, I think Kath Granger has, has written about that in her biography. And um, other athletes, you know, there, there was, um, I think, an action brought by, I can't remember her name. Um, it was one of the girls in the eight, yeah. Yeah, um, not not being selected. So, in as much as I think now, particularly with the millennial generation, that there, there are high expectations about how you will be treated in sport, and I think now organisations are much more risk averse about their procedures and their policies, um, and um, I, I think possibly under David Tanner. The, the previous performance director, um, he was prepared to make sure that, you know, 
to be protective about his chief coaches. I, I don't think that's the case with Brendan Purcell now. Um, and that, I think, is it, it's a massive change because to, to lose someone with that medal record is a big call. What is it, 18 months before the Olympics? And, um, you know, I, I'm not really as connected as I used to be. So I, I can't talk with great authority on that. But what I have heard, that the, the women's squad is, inverted commas, happier. What, what that means. I don't know what that means. Uh, but, you know, when, the men have had times in the past where they have been deeply unhappy with their head coach. And, well, you know... Mike Spratlin, a similarly successful and divisive coach, those people who work with him and they won, they love him and other people felt very, very undermined and that they underperformed under him. So, What you have with the men, you, you have this fascinating thing of, of a very prescriptive training system at Caversham. And, you know, Jürgen Grubler runs it in the way that he does. And, and what you had after Rio because people did not want to go through that system for another four years. When I say people, I mean Constantine Leloudis, I mean, um, you know, who could easily be doing Tokyo. Uh, Paul Bennett, who could easily be doing Tokyo. George Nash, who could easily be doing Tokyo. These guys are all Olympic champions. And, and the issue is they do not want to go through the capitalism system. It's, it's too much. They've done it. And even if you see... You know, Leludis. I mean, Leludis was very picky about what years he did. Um, he he drift in and drift out. So it does take a toll, and and it is for people that with a particular mentality. But what is affecting the British team now is retention, because clearly they have got no nailed on. Like you know, going to Rio is like well, the eight winning gold medals beating the Germans, the four. You know, he can now bring a four. That, that's a nailed on gold medal boat. Well, the, you look at Britain's British Ryan, you go, well, where's your gold medal men's boat? And there isn't one. And one of the massive reasons for that is retention. So that's a real issue because on the one hand, you've got this very rigid training programme. And I know I think there have been, you know, whispers about how Grubler is working and changing that, at, you know, this year to be a bit more competitive, do more high rate stuff, that kind of thing. Um, but nevertheless, what makes you very competitive at the gold medal could also affect your retention, which then the next Olympiad will mean that you're struggling. So that they're hoping that the fresh crop of athletes they brought in, people like, you know, Wynne Griffith and, and, and Tom Ford, that those kind of athletes um, are, are going to come through in enough time to challenge for gold. But if they don't, they won't, they won't get funding. Yeah. If they don't win gold medals, they won't get the funding. And then you're in a whole yeah. other issue. Mm. Because rowing in Britain doesn't have the same um, support as like American rowing from, from rich sort of ex-rowers. Exactly right. And it's it's the impact is more than a single Olympiad as well. But reflecting back a little bit on the um, the strictures around how you treat your athletes, I can say with my hand firmly on my heart, I'm extremely glad that we didn't have our laundry, dirty laundry washed in public like cycling did when Anne-Marie Phelps had to go and do an independent inquiry into the behaviours of a particular coach, which then gets published. And I think that was probably a very salutary lesson to a lot of sports to say, hang on a minute, let's just examine ourselves 
and check that we're on the right pathway. We may not be squeaky clean, but there are things that we need to change. Yeah, well, you have to be spot on with your procedures because I think millennials have got a whole new expectation about having a safe environment to work in and what that means. And therefore, you have to have procedures. So, so frankly, you, you can't have a coach by themselves telling an athlete you're not selected and then basically say, you know, don't appeal, you can't appeal, it'd be a waste of time. There has to be another person in there. There has to be an athlete friend. I mean, you know, you have to have procedures that work um, and, and it has to be seen as a safe environment because that's what young people expect these days. But it's not just that. There's actually a bigger implication, Martin. For a long time, our athletes have had an employment contract with British Rowan. Is that correct? Yeah. If you're under an employment contract, it's no different than your job or my job. And what employer outside of sport is allowed to say, Martin, you didn't make the grade. You dropped from the crew, you dropped from the squad, or you got injured. And, you know, as a consequence, you're no use to me because I'm a sporting organisation and I need a performing athlete, not a broken one. And they can simply drop you at the drop of a hat and your funding gets cut pretty quickly, particularly if it's clear that you're not coming back for whatever reason. And from an employment law point of view, I cannot but believe that there aren't some major issues there that haven't yet been challenged. Well, I, I, I think that there was a court case, wasn't there? Or maybe there's a case going through the courts about um, whether it was in terms of cycling um, that, that was challenging this, this particular concept of employment law and, and therefore duty of care. I, I do think that, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, bodies like British Rowing and, and you know, the, and other sports that employ athletes, I think they're, they're behind the curve but having to catch up. I think one of the good things that British International Rowing was doing, I mean, it's introduced, so, so being concerned about the mental health of its athletes, mm. you know, because of the pressures at Caversham, because who, who people have got to talk to, and, and clearly um, mental health and mental illness is something that's being more talked about now. And, you know, I was down doing an interview for um, the retirement of David Tanner and Anne-Marie Phelps, and... Um, <clears throat> There were a lot of, I thought, well, there's a lot of rowers here because it's like three or four o'clock in the afternoon. They've generally gone home. And they were kind of, no, we're here for the third of our mental health seminars. And they were, they were, you know, they'd employed a company. And, you know, to me, that's part of this duty of care, which, you know, all employers do have. Now, how much they're fulfilling that and what that actually means in terms of contracting is a very interesting issue, which I suspect might get played out in, in, in terms of the courts, possibly. One, one other aspect of that, you probably remember the Irish lightweight international, Geroit Towie, Gags. He yeah. started a business called Crossing the Line Sport. And his business helps sporting organisations help their athletes through retirement because apparently it is akin to coming off a drug habit. How do you retire from sport and begin to form the rest of your life in an effective and, and adult way that's fulfilling for you? And he spends a lot of time with organisations, not just with athletes, trying to explain to them that that duty of care goes beyond the finish line and the medal podium. Yeah, well, you know, I, I've done interviews with athletes, you know, uh, probably 
the, most, the two most powerful intervals I've ever done has been with um, Alex Partridge and Caroline Lynn for Row 360, and you can see them in back copies, and, and they were they were visceral about their experiences and um, what was available or not available from governing bodies um, at the time and, and, and how retirement was for them. And I think there are more stories than that. I mean, they were particularly eloquent. Um, and um, yeah, the, the, it, it is, as I say, I think Rowan introduced those seminars about mental health. And I think part of the aspect of that is what happens when you do cross the line. And Gags has, has been great with that organisation. I know he's done some fantastic work with the cycling team that he's, he's been involved with. But also, you know, the, um, the workshops that he's had, you know, with the likes of Sarah Cook and, and Kim Brennan in Australia, fantastic speakers, really raising the profile of it. Um, to, to the extent that is being athlete-led um, or ex-athlete-led, which is really, I think, how that should work. And, and I think governing bodies are moving on that, albeit slowly. I hope they are, because the, the, the dreadful, dreadful sadness of a life destroyed by someone whose mental health is so affected by their leaving the sport and failing to find comfort and a space in the world that suits them after sport is just hideous. And he does actually, in his Twitter feed, highlight a very large number of suicides um, of athletes after leaving sport, including one who was due to speak at his own conference. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I have to say that's shocking, and clearly that that is very extreme because that that really is, I mean, is not not the case um, for the vast majority of athletes. But any mental illness that is avoidable is, you know, is something that governing bodies should think on, and, and clearly, you know, things with athletes having a breakdown or particularly even going to a case where they're, they're contemplating. Um, doing stuff with their own health is, is is shocking. Let's move on to some more cheerful things. Who's going to go fast at the World Championships this year, Martin? I, I don't know. I think, you know, the, the hot crews last year were from the Aussies and um, there was a fantastic race in the men's four. Um, and I guess most people's expectation would be that the same four would be out again. I mean, from what I've heard, that's not going to be the case. Um, you know, the Aussies got a silver medal in the eight. They got a silver medal in the quad. They had a decent young pair. It was in the small final, the 4-1 just from the Italians. Um, I wonder if if we're not going to see a pair like the stern pair of that four come out and challenge the Croatians. Um, Alex Hill and Jack Hargreaves, I think, were the stern pair. I know they're pretty quick in terms of all the percentages, like probably the highest percentage. Um, I just wonder if we'll see them in a pair. And the question is then, you know, if that's the case, what does Ian Wright do? Olympic qualification year is a lot of pressure. Um, so then will he go, if the pair comes out first, will he go four next and then eight, or will he go eight, then four? Basically, this is the year that coaches are not really worried so much about medals. They just want to tick the box with qualification. It's, it's really an odd year. What's going to happen in New Zealand? Because we've got Mahi, we've got Robbie, and we've also got Hamish Bond coming back into the squad. Yeah, well, there was that very um, anticipating uh, video of Mahi and Hamish in, in the pair. You know, I, 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 
Hamish has been very definite that he wants to row in the eight. Like he said that and in, in all his press releases. So I'm taking it at face value. I cannot see Hamish wanting to do a pair with Mahe. Like I can see him training. I thought it actually looked quite good. Um, I did no, hear... Noel Donaldson is a very good stirrer and I have a lot of time and respect for him and I count him as a friend. So I, I, it's a wind-up from him, but he enjoyed the effects. Yeah, but he's not working for New Zealand rowing now. I, I just saw the New Zealand rowing of party company with him. But um, oddly enough, I did like I was doing this thing for World Rowing, an article of the greatest rowers of all time, and I was I was struggling for a crew to put, you know, for Mahe Drysdale because there are a lot of scholars with like three Olympic gold medals and things like that, or two Olympics, and it was before 2016, and Mahe had his second gold. So I basically I bunged him in a four. I got a reaction from Eric Murray, who's like rode with Mahe in, in 2004 in the Olympics in a four. And he said, what are you doing putting Mahe in a four? You don't know what it's like to row with this guy. So, I, you know, I, I, I did look at him in the pair and I thought, oh, he looks really quite smooth. It, it really looked quite nice in the paddle. Um, Mahe said he's going to do the single possibly, you know, for another federation. He's mentioned Fiji. It's, uh, he, he rescinded that. He is not yeah. eligible for any other federation this year. To, to, to my way of thinking, Mahe is still wants to be in the single. Um, the quad, I think, was a great option for him. They were very unlucky not to medal at the World Championships. They were that much off winning a bronze medal. Um, if the eight could get round having Mahe, I mean, as I understand it, Mahe trains once a day, not twice a day. On the water. He, well, he yeah, um, the eight might want to train twice a day, and I don't know quite how that will work, having Mahe in an eight. And maybe, you know, a coach is going to have to make adjustments for that. It's not to say it couldn't work. I, I think there are lots of... Hamish, when he rode with Eric, I mean, Hamish did his single skull. That was his second session. Eric went off and did the ergo or stuff like that, or Hamish went and did the bike. So Hamish and Mahe would fit together if Hamish is in the A, if he doesn't want to, you know, if they're going to make adjustments, then then possibly that, that might work to, to fit the two of them together. I mean, I'm sure stuff's being arranged or has been arranged now as we speak. But for the Olympic year, Mahe still wants to be in the single. He got a little bit closer to Robbie at the national championships. But Robbie clearly didn't really perform after Lucerne last year. Do you think they were just overtrained? Well, I think that was an issue in 2017. Uh, you know, I, I talked to Robbie uh, last year and said, well, what happened to you, you know, um, in terms of those injuries? Because he broke that world record in Poznan. Yeah. And I think he basically thought he was invincible. Um, almost invulnerable there. And I know that, you know, they went on training camp after Poznan, him and his coach, um, Noel Donaldson there, and they did quite a lot of work. And so this year, after he raced in Linz, he said, I'm going to Munich and I'm not going to do too much. So it seemed that there was a bit of a lesson learned about overtraining. But clearly, if you look at his profile um, through the season, I mean, he's phenomenal. At the, it, it's the wrong, it's exactly the wrong profile. Um, because he's phenomenal at, like, the first World Cup. The early regattas, yep. But, you know, it's people like Chettle Borsch. You, you look at them and, they, you know, through the Europeans and the Worlds, the bloke's sculling like, like a dream. And he's phenomenal. And 
you know, talking to coaches and talk with, you know, the Czech performance director, Simon Cox. And he was like, he was really relaxed about Sinek getting beaten by Robbie Manson. He was going, well, let's see what happens to the Worlds. And of course, he was absolutely right, because like in 2017, Sinek took the gold medal. Mm. Um, it was sil silver medal again um, last year. Yeah. yeah. So I think Robbie, in terms of having a coach and phasing, has, has, he's got that that comp competition. I don't know whether the competition is too much with him, but he's got to be hitting it so fast. But clearly, the phasing is wrong. And whatever has to happen, because the lad should be doing 6.30 at the Worlds, not, not at the second World Cup, basically. Moving on, what's Steve Redgrave doing in China? Yeah, well, that, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that that knocked the Rome World for six when, when Steve got the job. I mean, he was saying to people it was his first proper job. Because um, although he got paid for speaking engagements and things like that, um, you know, I think he might have had a proper job when he was maybe working as a builder when I used to row with him yeah. in the early 80s. But um, he was so chuffed to get that job and it means so much to him. The, the, the thing is, uh, China has been the graveyard of so many coaches because um, you go with the best intent and you think it's going to be like another, you know, where you are in charge. But China's got so many layers of management and... and um, and it's such hierarchical authority that even like the rowing chief coach, like even Steve Redgrave, does not have necessarily the level of control that he would want, the level therefore of influence that he would want within the system. And you, you can look at any number of coaches that have worked in the Chinese system, either ones that have worked or ones that have gone out there to see if they could work. You know, I was talking with Gianni Costiglione. And he's been out there and he didn't feel he had the environment that he could, you know, produce what he wanted. So I think the biggest challenge for 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 any coach that goes to work in, in China and, and Steve included is, is, you know, how you can actually influence those above you so that what you want to happen can happen, like the training programs, where you want to go for training camps, all, all the, the regime, all the support stuff. And I think Steve has, has found that a particular challenge. They've clearly employed him as a name because he can bring people in. And, you know, in a sense, it would be a, it's a gift in terms of like someone like Tomo, British Rowan Sachs Tomo. Um, the, the top boat for China in in Tokyo will probably be the women's quad. Mm -hmm. That that was the boat that beat Tomo in the 2008 mm -hmm. Beijing Olympics, broke the British hearts of... Catherine Granger and Annie Vernon, who's recently published a new book. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe Redders, I don't know, but maybe Redders has, has, has got Tom O to work in a consultancy role. That that would be a great fit, I think, and a, and a real win for Chinese rowing. And I think that's what he'd be judged on, how, how he can bring in coaches to work in that system. Very, very interesting. Thank you. Now, I asked you before we started to... Uh... Have a little story ready for us. What have you got up your sleeve? Yeah, well, there, there's there's quite a few stories, and I was I was running running through stories, but um, you know the 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 one that the one that springs to mind is um, I, I think it was uh, I was rowing in a four, and there was um, it was a cox four 
it was Maxi, John Maxi, Adam Cliff, myself and John Garrett. And uh, we were training, I think, for the Seoul Olympics. And we used to go to Zabaldia on training camp. And, um, and Zabaldia is a, a, a like well-known by a lot of nations. And the Italian team train there. They, you know, they have their training centre there. A lot of nations go and, and they stay on the beach. And uh, we went um, one year and um, the trailer rocked up and the hotel is on the beachfront. So the Mediterranean's just out there and people had to go and get their boats off the trailer and take them and kind of over to the rowing lake, which is the other side of the road and, and basically go out rowing. And it was the first outing. And it happened, I think John, John and I were kind of a bit late from breakfast and we kind of got there. We were the last pair um, to take our boat off the trailer and kind of looking out to the sea, the sea was like an absolute mill pond. It was just like there were no waves whatsoever. And we just kind of looked at each other and we just thought, because, you know, I'm a bit of a rebel and John John Garrett was up for it. And we just thought, should we go rowing on the sea? So basically, we we kind of rigged up the boat and like and we just like and we left our shoes on the beach, like like a kind of warning, like because we didn't tell anyone, which was probably a bit stupid. And we just went out and you could see a boat in the far distance, but these things always look closer. And we probably went out about 10 kilometers into the Mediterranean Sea. Like you could see that the big mountain is about, you could see that was getting quite small. And then we, you know, it was really, there was a kind of, and we kind of just stopped. We didn't quite get to the boat because I think we started to bottle it. Um, there was no wind, but, when we stopped, I kind of then just said, and then I looked at my rigger and the top nut had come completely out. And it was just like about to fall out. And I thought, shit, we were just out in the middle of the sea. And um, luckily we got back safely, but it was one of the most amazing experiences and, and, and silly things to do because we were part of the Olympics. You'd never do it in Jürgen's squad. But it was one of the most memorable things. The only time I've ever been like coastal rowing on the Mediterranean. Um, so I treasure that that memory and that time rowing on the Mediterranean. Well, I think the call is out there. If you're a coastal rower and you'd like to teach Martin how to do it, get in touch. Absolutely. Martin, it's been a delight. Thank you for your insights and your knowledge and all of the things that you know, which I will continue to listen out for. Please tell the listeners where they can follow you and connect with you online. Yeah, well, on, on social media, I'm generally around on at Mark Crossy and, um, and always interested to, to hear any views or, or to watch any questions. Um, occasionally, I do a blog um, on the blog in Osman or on YouTube. Um, not so much these days. Mostly, I'm on World Rowing. And you can see me on their Facebook live feed at World Cup. So I go and lucky enough to chat to athletes in maybe a less formal way and see how they're doing at regattas and that's always quite fun this year i'm going to be at all the world cups and world championships and some of the coastal road events as well well we look forward to seeing all of that and for the listeners please remember to check out our sponsor rowtours.com forward slash rowing hyphen chat because that's what keeps us going is our generosity of our sponsors and you following through and clicking on their links 
please subscribe in iTunes or on the Google Play Store. We're on Stitcher. We're on Spotify. You can find us in most podcast apps. You can also discuss rowing chat in a couple of places. One is on the Reddit forward slash rowing, and the other is on the rowing illustrated boards, where Sean Wolf has opened up a new board specifically for podcast discussions. And we'll put a link to this chat into that room. Till next time, it's been delightful. Goodbye. Thank you.